Hello and welcome to Alchemy Radio, the home of the open mind. Thanks for tuning in. Hopefully you enjoy the show and the variety of guests that we bring to you as regularly as we possibly can. As regular listeners will know, we rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and advertising-free format, and we're determined to keep it in that state and are extremely grateful for any help you can offer. There's no fixed costs on your donations or subscriptions, and every little bit helps. So if you could spare even the price of a cup of coffee, as I'm so fond of saying... This would go a long, long way towards keeping us afloat. The donate and subscribe buttons are on the website and all support and assistance is greatly appreciated. We're on Twitter if you want to get in touch. That's twitter.com forward slash alchemy radio and on Facebook as well. And we'd love to hear from you with your feedback, guest suggestions and anything else as well. So on to the show. Today's guest is Daniel Unterbrink. Daniel has dual degrees in accounting and education from The Ohio State University. He spent over 20 years in Medicare auditing and retired four years ago. In 2004, Daniel published his first book entitled Judas the Galilean. This book set forth the theory that the historical Jesus was not the gospel Jesus of Nazareth, but rather a man of history, Judas the Galilean. He followed that up with two other books, New Testament Lies and The Three Messiahs, which strengthened his argument based on more historical data. His new book, Judas of Nazareth, summarizes the findings set forth in the previous books and adds significant insights into the formation of the gospel story as well as the life of Paul. So let's see if we can shed new light upon three big questions. Who was the historical Jesus? Who was the historical Paul? And who wrote the gospel of Mark? Daniel, you're very welcome to Alchemy Radio. How are you? I'm fine. I'm uh, looking forward to having a good discussion. Likewise, I think there are some very juicy topics and nuggets of information that we can go into and delve into in depth. But before we do that, there's a question I like to ask most guests who come onto the show, if you're happy enough to answer it. And I suppose that's, how did you get from where you were initially to where you are now? Because your background isn't in Jesusology, if there is such a thing. Uh, No, it isn't. Uh, um, I basically have a background in accounting. And uh, this was always kind of a hobby of mine. Um, I grew up Roman Catholic, but uh, when I was about 20 years old, I got involved with a very fundamentalist uh, church. So I spent, you know, like eight hours a day reading the Bible. I mean, it was just constant. And I I got an idea of, of, you know, where everything was in the Bible and, then I started reading history, and, you know, the problem was, as I started reading a lot of the history, it, it, a lot of questions were raised. So as uh, I developed, you know, years went by, you know, and I kept reading and reading and reading, and then I, I had certain authors that I really enjoyed, and uh, I could usually tell if something was uh, in line with what I thought was uh, consistent with, uh, with common sense. Uh, versus uh, some of the uh, traditional views of Christianity. But I think it was uh, probably back around 2002, I just happened to be having a discussion with somebody at work, and we were talking about the uh, birth narratives uh, of uh, Jesus. So, you know, I went in and looked at Matthew and Luke, and, you know, I said, well, one of them is 4 B.C., and one of them is 4 eight or 6 AD. You know, there's like a 10 or 12-year difference between the two. Yeah. 
So, you know, that, that, you know, I, that raised some questions in my mind, you know, which I'd, I'd already been aware of that. But then I, I went into Josephus's writings, who is a uh, Jewish historian, and those two dates pointed to an indi- individual named Judas. So at that point, I, I became very interested. So it was uh, a couple-year uh, search into all the documents and everything I could find about this individual, Judas the Galilean, and I found that uh, this was probably as close a match as you could get for uh, who I would have considered being a Messiah figure in the first century. I came about it. It took 20, 25 years to get to that point, but uh, it, uh, eventually that became my passion. For the last 10 years, I've been kind of researching that. And you've come to some fascinating conclusions as well. Now, as somebody brought up in Catholic Ireland and who went to Mass every week and that kind of thing, most people who are raised in the Catholic Church in Ireland, I suppose certainly in my experience and my peer group, would have been brought along to Mass and that would have been it. We didn't really read the Bible. As far as we were concerned, Jesus was just a guy who was spoken about by a priest in robes at the top of an altar. We knew that he probably had a beard and long hair. We knew that he was the son of God and that he performed miracles and he ascended into heaven and rose again and all this kind of stuff. But to be honest, most people, in my experience, wouldn't have known a whole lot beyond that. And there's this... This little thing called faith, which we were brought up to have, and we were told, look, don't question anything, have faith. And you mentioned common sense, Daniel, a few minutes ago. And quite often there is this, um, this dichotomy, there's common sense versus faith. And I think that leads a lot of people away from questioning the church or the Bible or any kind of religious investigation. So did you face any challenges from your peer group or the people that you associated with when you decided to go down this route initially? Um, well, one of the first uh, people that read my, my first book was my mother, who was very Catholic. You know, and she was at least willing to uh, read the book. And I, I really, to the, you know, she died about 10 years ago, but to this day I don't know whether or not she agreed with me or, or not, not. But at least she was willing to uh, to read the book, so you know, there are a lot of people would just shake their heads and you know, not agree with me or you know they they hold on to what they believe. And I said that's fine. I think you know at least in this country and most countries, you have the right to believe whatever you want. What I am just presenting is a historical approach uh, to these questions, and you know if it shakes some people's faith, you know so be it. But you know, to me, I, I had that uh, that uh, urge to and desire to find out what I consider to be the truth. So, uh, yeah, I think it does ruffle some feathers, but, you know, in, in a way that can be a good thing, too. Absolutely. It makes life a bit interesting as well. And one of the notable uh, factors in your work is the the fact that you've, I, th- I would imagine deliberately, but you certainly have seemed to steer clear from any kind of Christian interpretation or a single type of interpretation of the origins of the story that you present. I mean, you've looked at historical fact and data, and that's quite an unusual thing because so many people will reference based on a, an existing paradigm, and they won't look beyond that. But, I mean, you've gone into this with a very broad and open mind, haven't you? Well, you know, being... a uh 
an accountant maybe helped me in that regard because if you're let's say you're a PhD in uh, in this subject matter, well you've learned and you've had everything ingrained in your head so for so long that it's hard to get away from the traditional viewpoint of things. For instance, the uh, the timelines. You know, you're you're sure that John the Baptist came in 28, 29 A.D. Where I'm looking at that and I go, well, wait a second, let's look at some other data. You know, if I had a Ph.D. in that, maybe I wouldn't have I, uh, uh, looked as hard as I did. So, I mean, there are some advantages to uh, not having that background. Let's look at the overriding question then, because I suppose the broad summation of your work is that Jesus is not the Jesus that we are led to believe based on accepted Christian paradigm. So who is Jesus? Who could he possibly have been? Did he exist at all? Or did he just exist in a different form to that which we're normally taught? Massive questions here, but you've dedicated almost 20 years of your life to it, so you've got some of the answers for us. Yeah, well, I think the the historical figure behind Jesus of Nazareth is is a person named... Judas the Galilean. And Josephus writes about him and his movement throughout his book. Uh, scholars have often have looked in Josephus's writings for Jesus of Nazareth and his movement, and they can't find him because he didn't exist. But yet this, this uh, guy named Judas the Galilean did have a movement, and it did exist, and it did, as he, as he said, it kind of infected the entire Jewish uh, world at that time. So here's a here's a man that was much greater than even what we consider Jesus of Nazareth, because he uh, uh, developed a group that actually challenged the Roman Empire, which <laughs> that's no that was no small feat. That's like a small country challenging the United States. You know, it just it, you just look at it and go, this is this is amazing. Mm. This guy did that, but yet he hasn't been given any credit throughout history, and there are some reasons why. So tell us a little bit about this Judas. I suppose not to be confused with Judas Iscariot. Um, No, Judas Iscariot also is an invented figure. That person never existed either, but Judas the Galilean did. Uh, Judas, the, the first mention of him was in 4 BC, right at the end of Herod the Great's reign. Now, now, this is a time when Matthew has the birth of Jesus. Okay, in 4 BC, Her- uh, Judas and his partner, and it might have been his father, Matthias, they cleansed the temple. There was a golden eagle that Herod had erected at one of the gates that was uh, a sign of fealty to Rome because Herod was very close to the Roman Empire. So uh, Judas, you know, he was, he was a nationalist. He didn't want anything uh, to do with Rome. So they had, uh, he and his partner, uh, when there was a word that Herod was sick and dying, they led a, a revolt or an insurrection where they tore down the golden, golden eagle and that was the uh, first cleansing of the temple by Judas. And that was in 4 BC. Uh, he and Matthias were arrested uh, by Herod, because Herod was still alive at that point. And uh, Matthias was put to death, and 
Judas would have been put to death also, but uh, Herod just happened to die very shortly thereafter. And his son, Archelaus, who came to power right after Herod the Great died, uh, had a very shaky role. He, he didn't control the people well, so he kind of gave in to their demands. And one of their demands was for a prisoner release. And I think this is the, the, uh, the start of the uh, Barabbas legend. And after that, Judas was released and then later went to Galilee and kind of reformed his group and was proclaimed Messiah in, in uh, Galilee around 4 B.C. to 2 B.C. So essentially in the early days, are we looking at a political movement of sorts as opposed to anything religious? Well, the, the Jews at the time did not distinguish between political and religious. It was the same thing. Okay. For instance, the, the movement of the Zealot movement of Judas the Galilee and the Fourth Philosophy, their idea was that God was their only ruler. Okay, now, if God is your only ruler, and Rome has happened, is, is ruling you also, it, it's a religious thing because you say God is your only ruler, but it's political also because you've got to get rid of Rome now. So it was, you know, depending on who you are, I'm sure the Romans looked at it as purely uh, political, but to the uh, Jews of the day, it would have been religious also. So that uh, springs a question to my mind, Daniel, and that's considering that our, our biblical Jesus, for want of a better term, is very unlike what you've just described. I mean, uh, a, a political religious rebel, really, you know, could he really, I mean, could this be the same guy or why was this guy picked as the template, if you like? Well, um, you have to get into the movement of Paul to figure this out. Okay. Uh, Jesus had his own movement called the Fourth Philosophy. For a better term, I've called it the, G the Jewish Jesus movement. Okay, these guys are following Judas the Galilean. Around the year 35 to 40, Paul creates his own movement, and I've termed that the Christ movement, because he gets his message or his gospel from the risen Christ, not from any human being. So he has developed a, a, an idea of a another religion, essentially. And he is preaching another religion. And if you read through the, the book of Galatians and the letter to the Corinthians, you, you see this uh, back and forth between Peter and Paul, and they are not in agreement. So you've got two separate movements, and uh, what happens, they eventually, around 44 A.D., the Jewish Jesus movement kicks Paul out of the movement, and that's included in the book of Galatians, where they turn their back on him. So Paul kind of has a vendetta. <laughs> he, he is really upset, but, you know, the, the Jewish Jesus movement, they have disciples throughout the empire. Every synagogue, they, they can maybe control. So they have a lot of power throughout the empire, and they're hounding Paul. So... Christianity as we know it today would not exist had not the Jewish war happened with Rome. Because when the Jewish war occurred between 66 and 70 AD, the Jewish Jesus movement was utterly destroyed. There were only a, a small remnant of them left. And at that point, uh, the, the 
person of Je- named Jesus of Nazareth was created by Paul. And Paul was still alive at this time, although uh, Christian, uh, the Christian uh, traditions have him dying in Rome in, in 64 AD with Peter. Mm. But uh, Josephus has him meeting with Nero in modern-day Greece in 67 AD. So Paul was still around. So he, with the, the vacuum that is created by the destruction of the Jewish Jesus movement or the fourth philosophy or even the whole Jewish nation in 70 AD, uh, there's, there's now a, a, a chance for Paul to regain his churches. But what he does is he creates a Messiah figure that is based on the framework of Judas the Galilean in the things that he did, but infused with Paul's own, own teachings. Right, so essentially so what we're looking at... It's a composite figure. Right, and essentially I suppose it's the first historical motive for the existence of Jesus Christ and the name and the, the Jesus as we eventually know him. Yeah. Absolutely sure. fascinating, and it's something that I've always wondered about, because even growing up I remember being very young and sitting in Mass or listening to people talking about it, and I always wondered, well... Things don't seem quite right to me. Religion personally never sat very comfortably with me. It seemed like a bit of a fairy tale. And I just, I mean, again, a lot of my common sense was telling me, look, that's not the way it could necessarily be. But nobody could ever answer the question for me. Well, why would somebody make it up? Some people would allude perhaps to, well, it's to keep everyone in check and to control people or whatever. But I always thought there had to be a reason going right back in time. It couldn't be that just in the 20th century, somebody with nefarious intent decided to, uh, to hijack religion. I mean, it had to go back. And your work is the first time I've ever come across that kind of a hypothesis. And it's really backed up by so much historical record. So tell us, if you wouldn't mind, Daniel, how easy was it for you to source material and to go so far back? What are the records like because we're not looking at any kind of internet document, uh, documentation here. Uh, no. Well, the majority, I'd say 95% of the information is in uh, Josephus, the, uh, his two books, The War, which covers a period up to like 73 AD, and it covers primarily the Jewish war with Rome. So there's a lot of data in there. And his other book, which is a much longer book called The Antiquities of the Jews, which covers a period from the beginning of uh, Genesis, essentially, up to about 67 A.D. So in, that, in all those documents, you know, there's a lot of stuff about Judas the Galilean, the fourth philosophy, you know, his movement. And there's also a lot of things about a, a man named Saul, who is really the... Uh, the historical Paul of Tarsus. Uh, this Saul uh, was kind of an unsavory character, but if you match him up against the uh, the Paul in the Book of Acts, it's like uh, identical to the things that they're doing, except they're different dates and the motives are different. Uh, so you know, I'd say that ninety-five percent of the information that I got was from from Josephus. Uh, there's a little bit from Tacitus uh, on the Great Fire of Rome. Um, there's a little bit, just a couple lines from Suetonius, uh, who talks about the uh, the Jews that followed Christ, who were always 
causing disturbances. Well, that's very unlike our picture of what we think that uh, the traditional Christians would be troublemakers. But yet uh, Suetonius essentially says that these guys were Jewish troublemakers. You know, so I was like, this, this, a lot of these things don't uh, jibe with uh, the traditional viewpoint of, of Christianity. And then the, the last uh, piece of uh, what I would call primary evidence would be the, the letters of Paul. Because he is writing, even though he has a bias towards himself and against uh, Peter and James, who were the leaders of the Jewish Jesus movement, even though he has a bias, he at least presents information that you can start to build with the help of Josephus a picture of what, what went on and, and the dates. So I would say, you know, taking all that and then comparing it to the traditional story is how I arrived at the, what I arrived at. Okay, and some of the some of the parts of the story that we're all so familiar with are quite interesting, and they must have come from somewhere. So what did you unearth with regard to, for example, miracles or celibacy or any of these little quirks that have, I suppose, affected so many people who adhere mm-hmm. to particular religions throughout the ages? Okay, well, let's take celibacy for, for a example. Um, everyone assumes that Jesus of Nazareth was celibate. Mm. But when you look into Paul's writings... In 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, I think it's verse 5, he's complaining because he says, only, only I and Barnabas are celibate, but then Peter and all the brothers of the Lord, and he says brothers, so it's, it's a plural. There's more than one, just one brother of the Lord. So, you know, the, the Messiah had, uh, a, a, you know, several brothers at least. Mm. It says they were all married. So... Everybody in the movement besides Paul was married. So you kind of have to wonder, well, was was Jesus married? You know, if all his disciples were, if all his real disciples were married, was he married? Uh, then, you, then you get into uh, uh, the book of Mark, and even in Mark they have uh, uh, Peter's mother-in-law. So again, it, there, there's more confirmation that Peter was married. But I think that the key, the reason why Jesus of Nazareth was not married in the, in the gospel story is that he is a stand-in for Paul. Paul was not married. So Paul, who is writing the story, makes Jesus of Nazareth not married, and Paul claims that he was superior to the other apostles because he was not married, that he had more time to do work where they had to uh, make their concerns with their daily lives and their wives and and such. Mm. So that's why Jesus of Nazareth is not married, because he he has just the uh, concerns of God on his mind. So we could actually... It's kind of bait and switch. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. We could actually be looking at a situation whereby uh, people, <laughs> priests, for example, who aren't allowed to marry and are supposedly they remain celibate throughout their lives is because Paul wasn't a success with the ladies. Well, it could be. Wow. <laughs> that might have been part of his problem. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, if, if you take it back even to the historical Peter, who is supposed to be the uh, first pope, he was married. 
So, you know, the the reason why they uh, uh, practice celibacy today is another passage from Paul in Corinthians where he talks about the unmarried man has more time on his hand to devote to to God. Mm. And and that's why the the Catholic Church um, preaches celibacy for the priesthood. But, again, there's really, other than Paul, all the other disciples, all the apostles, they all were married. In fact, if they're good Jews, good Jews did marry because that was a command from God. Right, okay. In the beginning of Genesis. And when you get look into Judas the Galilean, he had at least three sons that are mentioned by Josephus. Two of them were uh, crucified, and another cleansed the temple before the Jewish war, and then he was killed. And then he had a grandson. You've heard of Masada. Yep. His grandson led the group at Masada. So this is how important this man was, Judas the Galilean, throughout... From the year 4 B.C. all the way to 73 A.D., his family dominates the political uh, arena in Judea. So, and it's amazing nobody's heard of him. Absolutely. And is it possible then to trace that bloodline right down to the current age? And what, what I suppose I'm really getting at is... Um, the popularization of works such as uh, Biaget Lee and Lincoln's Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code kind of popularized uh-huh. and stuff, um, bastardized, many would say. I mean, is it, is it possible to actually trace this to the current day? Is there any weight or any water from the research and the work you've done with those kind of theories? Because they don't fully tally, do they, with the work that you've done? No, I, I really don't think so. I- I've written in uh, I, in the chapter on foundation legends, the uh, flight to Pella, where the uh, the Jewish Christians supposedly escaped before Jerusalem was destroyed. And I've written about how, uh, from the documentation that I've come up with, that they were probably mostly uh, all all killed. Okay. You know that's that's why the Pauline movement took off because the majority of the followers of Judas the Galilean were put to death. So uh, I, I really don't see how you could even follow such a bloodline. I mean, there's just no documentation for that. Mm, yeah. It's a good story, and it's interesting. I, I enjoyed reading the books, but I, you, know, you take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, likewise. And something that's always struck me, Daniel, is there's a kind of a ritualistic, well, there's a major rit- ritualistic aspect to the, uh, the sacraments and the way that the Catholic Church has traditionally practiced their religion. And that, again, must have come somewhere. Would it be anything to do with um, pagan ritual in the past? Would this be to popularize Paul's movement? Or where would that have come about? Yeah, a lot of the, uh, the rituals of the uh, Catholic Church came from the pagan religions. Um, the the gospels themselves point towards uh, Mithras, uh, Dionysus. I mean, mm. they were borrowing from the pagan rituals of the time, and you know, and it was good marketing. I mean, if that was popular, your religion to compete had to be popular. Popular also, so uh, there there was nothing. It's not like they had the internet where they could do a Google search and what was the original church like, or the original 
followers of Jesus. They were taught something. The people believed it. You know, everything from the blood of the lamb. These are these were rites that were used by other other pagan religions of the time. Mm. So, and I, I know it's it's hard for a lot of people to to grasp, but that you know that's a lot of people would be in agreement. A lot of scholars would uh, would agree with that. And what would you say then, Daniel, to those who would say that? Well, I mean, surely it's just the case that. The Gospels are a load of own nonsense by somebody with too much time on their hands and they've been changed so many times down through the years and the Bible has changed so many times and depending on whatever king or whatever religious leader was in power at the time, they changed it to suit their own ends. So, it, I mean, how can we really trace back with any degree of certainty? What would you say to people who would just dismiss out of hand any kind of ancient historical research such as the work that you've done? Well, you know, those people, I guess they have the right to believe whatever they want. Um, to the, I'm trying to reach the people that really want to look into this, mm. that really are interested in their religion. Uh, even if they don't agree with everything that I say, there's a lot, of, there's a lot there that can get them thinking. Um, for instance, so we've got a new, you've got a new pope now, and this new pope is taking uh, the command to help the poor to heart, Mm. which to me would have been the center of the message of the original uh, Judas the Galilean, because they practiced a a pure uh, primitive communism. Josephus called them uh, lunatics. You know, uh, he called the fourth philosophy of Judas the Galilean. These people were lunatics because they give their property away. Mm. You know, and we would look at that today as being the same thing. <laughs> you know, these guys are, you know, like a cult. But this is what they believe. They believe that the kingdom of, of God was among them right now. So, you know, to, to love your neighbor as yourself, that meant that you couldn't let your neighbor starve. You couldn't let him go hungry. You had to help him. So this was a community or what they used to call the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God was, was uh, a powerful message. And I, I, I like the Pope that you have now because I think he is at least going to that one message. He might argue about other points, but to me that was one of the, the biggest uh, messages of the, the primitive, the very early church, that uh, most... most uh, other popes or even most other churches in uh, the Protestant world, they pretty much, uh, you believe, and that's great, and then you're saved, and you kind of live the whatever life you want to live. Yeah. You know, th- at least this pope is saying, no, you gotta, you got to act the part. And I think that was part of the original. Okay, so there wasn't necessarily a get-out-of-jail-free card back in the day. No, in fact, the, the originals... Uh, Judas the Galilean, John the Baptist, they all believed in following the law, the law of Moses, because they were good Jews. Their only, their only thing is the difference between their movement and other movements like the Pharisees or the Essenes is they were preaching a nationalism also. Hmm. They wanted to expel the Romans. So they were the radical Pharisees. They were the radical Essenes, you know, coalescing around this leader. But they still, they still preached the law. And that's why when you read Paul's letters, 
he's always denouncing the laws as being uh, that it's not for his disciples, that they just need faith. Well, that wasn't what the originals taught. Uh, Jews the Galilean, John the Baptist, James, they all, they all talked about following the law. And, and that's why you have two different Gospels in, in the beginning of the, the first century. One, one preached the law, one preached grace, where you, you pretty much just believe and you're saved. Mm. You know, even Paul, by preaching that, he had situations in his churches where, you know, they were sinning, and one of the people would say, well, you know, the more I sin, the more grace I get. You know, that, that mindset works today. Yeah, that's one way of you looking know? at it, and a lot of people do look at it that way today. Yeah. It's a very destructive philosophy. Um, On the other hand, the idea of, pr- of practicing righteousness, being good towards other people, that's a very positive philosophy, and that's the philosophy of Judas the Galilean, John the Baptist, and James the Just, right? Uh, as opposed to Paul's philosophy. And one of the things for me as I look at your work, Daniel, is context. I mean, context is a great thing. And what it has certainly done for me is provided a context whereby information that was seemingly unconnected can suddenly connect. For example, the political context that you describe in your work and your research suddenly means a lot of the pieces of the jigsaw that seemed disparate click into place for me because it means that suddenly motive is provided where I mightn't have noticed it in the past. And suddenly there appears to be a reason why A, B, C and D happen in a particular order rather than just, for example, divine intervention or somebody in the 15th or 16th century writing something down because they wanted somebody to believe something that benefited them at the time. So... I think context is a great thing. Were you very conscious of that as you researched this work? Were you, were you looking to provide context for the reader? I mean, that generally happens by circumstance anyway, but it, it seems deliberate and methodical, and it makes it very, very easy to access your work, in my opinion. Well, yeah, I did, because I wanted to make sure the timeline was correct. You know, the, one of the problems when you read the, the New Testament is... There, there's an inconsistency on the timelines. Mm. Nothing makes sense. So I wanted to be, you know, like you say, methodical and make sure that boom, 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 everything uh, lines up. And then also look at it in terms of the political, what's going on in the political world at these times to see if I can make sense of it. And if you don't have the right times, then you, you, you're not going to be able to apply any, any analysis to it. Uh, a good example would be uh, the stoning of Stephen in the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. And th- when, when Stephen is stoned, uh, right after that, Paul or Saul is introduced to the world as being uh, trying to, he's persecuting the church. This is before his conversion. And this is in 35 AD. Josephus writes about the same thing, except he writes about. James the Just, the brother of Jesus, the historical Jesus, being stoned in 62 AD, and right after that, Saul, the cousin of Agrippa, who's a Herodian, starts to persecute people. So what you have is a 62 AD event being put back in time by the writer of Acts to 35 AD, which makes the, the uh, post 
movement, uh, the expelled uh, Saul, because he's been kicked out of the movement already mm. in 62, they're making that evil person now into a pre-conversion person. So he's evil before he's converted, and he's perfectly fine afterwards. In actuality, the exact opposite happened, that he was in the movement, got expelled, and then later he's persecuting the Christians, you know, into the 60s. Yeah, but I guess that wouldn't make for a very uh, very good story if you were trying to... Well, it's, it's a great story, but it, it's not a good story for Paul. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, when you look at his motives and his ends. Yeah. So, essentially, we... we have a situation whereby you had a lot of parallels that you had to work out and work backwards and forwards along the timeline to try and figure out what fit where and why. That mm. must have been tremendously frustrating at times. Yeah, you know, there would be times where um, I'd be driving back to my hometown. All of a sudden, an idea would come to me. So it's time to, to do some research. Mm. You know, it's just, I didn't sit at a desk you know, for eight hours a day, you know, thinking about things. It, it just, uh, you know, one day something came, another day, and it was just piecing things together over the years. It, it almost reminds me of the creative process. I suppose my day job, if you want to call it that, is music production. And I'm not somebody who can sit for eight hours a day in the studio, five days a week, just because it's that time of the day and create or have any kind of inspiration or I, I, I'm somebody who f needs to feel an emotional connection to what it is I'm doing. And obviously this was a labor of love for you, so there must have been an element of that whereby if you just sat down and tried to slog it out, it would become a complete chore and you'd never get anywhere. Well, that's true. And, you know, you can even look at my, my first three books that I wrote, uh, I've added from one book to the next something that, you know, maybe a point that I didn't get right the first time. Mm. And then I'm re-examining things. I go, oh, here's a point that maybe is not right. And then I refine it, and then I refine it again. I think this last book, I'm not saying everything in it is perfect, because it's not. In fact, I actually had to cut the book in half, because I've got another book that if this one sells, I'll be able to, to publish also that has even more support for this theory. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's been a gradual, uh, like you say, labor of love. I, I, I've enjoyed doing it, and it is, it is tiring, and it, it is, uh, <laughs> it, there's a lot of stuff there. But I have to do, I have to thank uh, uh, Professor Barry Wilson from the University of Toronto, or University of York in Toronto, uh, he read through all my uh, chapters, and he commented on it, uh, wrote the foreword to my book, and so he was a great help. And also uh, Professor uh, Robert Eisenman, who is responsible for getting the Dead Sea Scrolls released to the public. Mm. Uh, he has written an endorsement on, on the book, and uh, a lot of my ideas kind of originated from him, except he came, came at it from such a... Uh, a scholarly pers perspective. You know, you could have one point, and you'd have to get to page 900 to, to get to it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe one person out of a million would get to it. But what I've tried to do is make it more readable and then put everything together. And did you uncover any kind of deliberate veiling of the truth at any stage in the research? I mean, surely with so much motive swirling around, 
there must have been people and historical characters down through the ages who deliberately didn't want a lot of the information coming to light. Or am I completely mistaken there, Daniel? Um, you, you, even in the, uh, the uh, Gospels and Acts, I would say the majority of the, uh, the bait-and-switch occurred at the very beginning in those. And then you have later times where you go into Josephus and maybe passages have been somewhat altered to hide the facts. Mm-hmm. That has also happened. But let me give you a good example about in the book of Acts. When they talk about Judas the Galilean, in, in Acts chapter 5, yep. uh, Judas is, is essentially said to be a, a one-hit wonder, and then his disciples are scattered and he dies in 6 AD. Uh, this passage was based on a passage from Antiquities, but in, the, in, the, in Josephus' uh, writings, it wasn't Judas the Galilean, but the sons of Judas the Galilean. So you have either the author of Acts deliberately uh, used the wrong, the, the Judas the Galilean versus the sons of Judas the Galilean, or he just did sloppy homework. I, I don't know. But, you know, there, there's a case where uh, it gives a totally different meaning, and, and people accept Acts as being the Word of God, so even though you, you can prove that it's a mistake, people won't believe it. Mm. Well, I've, I've a lot so. of experience of that, <laughs> as I think we all do. So, John the Baptist... Uh, historical figure that we hear so much of, but we hear so many differing and contradictory stories about who he is and who he was. Where does he link in with this whole body of work? Okay. Um, In the traditional story, John the Baptist is like 30 years old when he comes onto the scene in like 29 AD. Mm. This was in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, so that'd be about 29 AD. And then really within a year or so, he's put to death. So in the traditional story, he's only around for like a year or two at most. Mm. Now, the the Slavonic Josephus, which I've written about in the book, is another document that talks about John the Baptist. But the funny thing is there, they have John the Baptist uh, introducing the Messiah in 6 AD instead of 29. Okay. Okay, and that 6 AD is right before the introduction of, of uh, Judas the Galilean. Mm. And he preaches the exact same message. It, it's, a, it's a nationalism of uh, the same thing as Judas. And in Antiquities, there's a, a pairing at the exact same time in 6 AD of Judas the Galilean and a man named Sadik, which Sadik is a term that means righteous. And John preached a baptism of righteousness. So I think very, it's very likely that John was the Sadduck who was the kind of the second in command behind Judas the Galilean. And uh, Robert Eisenman has also written about that, and he totally agrees with what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So I feel very confident about that. So here, here John comes in 6 AD. He's on, he's on the arena for 30 years, because he doesn't die really until 36 A.D., not 30 or so, like what the Gospels say. So he's around for 30 years. The Gospels pretty much write him out of the story. If he's only in, in the story for one year or yeah. a couple paragraphs, he was, a, he was a big leader. In fact, 
after uh, Judas the Galilean dies around 19 to 20 A.D., he's the leader of the movement for another 15 years. But yet nobody knows that. Mm. You know, and the reason why uh, John the Baptist is put to death in 36 by Herod Antipas, because he... uh, Herod was afraid that John was going to incite a rebellion against his rule because the people, as Josephus said, they would do anything that he asked them to do. So this John had great political uh, power, you know, great religious power. How did he get that if he was like an afterthought, like what the Gospels give him? This guy was was leading the movement for a very long time. Just even as you speak, so many of the parallels are suddenly drawn together and things make a lot more sense. And it's probably worth noting at this point for those who mightn't be aware, the Gospels and what they are and who they're written by. I mean, the, the Gospel of Mark, for example, or the Gospel of Matthew, it doesn't mean that Matthew or Mark wrote these passages. So what light can you shed on that for the uninitiated, so to speak? Uh, okay, first of all, uh, most scholars will agree that the uh, the first gospel to be written was the Gospel of Mark. And it was written sometime after 70 A.D. because it talks about the destruction of the temple, which occurred in 70 A.D. Mm-hmm. So most, of them, most scholars put that first. Then Matthew was written maybe another 10 years later, around 80. Uh, Luke and Acts were probably written sometime after... Antiquities was published in 93 A.D. because a lot of that data comes from Josephus. And then uh, the Gospel of John is probably written just a little bit later than that. As for who wrote them, I'm claiming that the Gospel of Mark was either written by Paul, because he's still alive. Mm. You know, the, the... Traditional church wants to have him dead by 64. They don't want him connected with this. In fact, they even say that Mark, who is the secretary of Peter, wrote this. But it's impossible because it's a Pauline document. It has everything to do with Paul's gospel and nothing to do with the uh, uh, original gospel that would have been preached by the Jewish Jesus movement. So uh, I think Paul wrote that, and I I have a whole chapter devoted to the the many things in the Gospel of Mark that tie into Paul's own preaching. And then Matthew is supposed to be a Jewish document, but some of the most, uh, it's really a Pauline document, again, but some of the most anti-Jewish teachings throughout the ages have come from the the, uh, Gospel of Matthew, like when when, uh, Pilate washes his hands of the death of Jesus, and the Jews say, oh, let that responsibility be on us and our children for all time. Well, been, that's been a great excuse to persecute the Jews throughout history, and that came from the Gospel of Matthew. Plus, when Jesus dies in the Gospel of Matthew on the cross, the Jews don't, aren't concerned, but it's the Gentile soldier who says, oh, surely he was the Son of God. So it's, it's the, the Gentiles who are always the recipients, and they're the ones that have faith, and it's the Jews that put Jesus to death. So these were not Jewish documents by any stretch of the imagination. They were, they were divine, uh, created to, uh, for a Gentile audience 
so that the Gentiles could be assured that their Jesus of Nazareth represented them. And this goes back to what, what Paul talked about in the 40s, because he would talk about the, the people of Israel, and he would say that they were going to be replaced by his Gentile converts, which is uh, pretty radical, and that's one reason why they, they kicked him out of the movement. And just when you reference the temple, Daniel, what specifically are you speaking about there? The, the temple? Yeah. The, uh, the temple uh, in Jerusalem was originally, well, Solomon built the, uh, the first temple. Mm. But uh, the, the temple that we're talking about in Jesus' time was actually built by Herod the Great. Okay, it was a huge, have you ever been to Jerusalem? I haven't, no, not yet. But uh, the, the Wailing Wall... You've heard of the Wailing Wall. Oh, yeah, I'm sure absolutely. Most of the yeah. audience does. That, that was just one wall in this temple complex. The temple complex uh, encompassed like 70 football fields. Wow. It's, it was huge. You know, the idea that, you know, when Jesus overturns a table or two, that he's doing much. Well, if you've got a, <laughs> an institution as big as 70 football fields, to cleanse the temple, it would almost have taken an army to do it. And that's exactly what he probably had behind him when, when they went to cleanse the temple. Okay, so, so the know, temple is hugely symbolic then, and it's, it's not just this small little chapel on the side of the road. Oh, no, it was huge. <laughs> okay. And it did, this was the center of the, the Jews' worship uh, throughout the, the Roman world. I mean, hmm. if, if you wanted to make a pilgrimage on one of the uh, holidays, like Passover, and go to Jerusalem... Can you imagine the, the amount of money that the uh, people that are running the the hotels, the eateries, the uh, mm. uh, changing uh, money and the money changers, they're all making tons of money from this cult, the temple cult. But yet this was part of Judaism. And unfortunately, the people that controlled the temple were appointed by Herod the Great, and the money went to the Herodian family, and to the, the high priesthood. So it was kind of a very corrupt system by the time Jesus was on the scene. And, uh, and it became even more corrupt as time went on. Yeah, things really haven't changed since then, have they? <laughs> <laughs> no, they haven't, unfortunately. So then when we look at some of the stories that people would be very, very familiar with, um, such as the birth of Jesus... Um, or we've, we've already mentioned the temple, but some of the milestone moments, the resurrection and things like that, what are they symbolic of and why were these written into the, the, the timeline of Jesus' life or the Jesus as we know him within the paradigm? Okay, well, let's just talk about the birth of Jesus. Uh, the first record uh, in Mark doesn't even mention it. I mean, they just have him coming on the scene at, as an adult. Right. Matthew first mentions it, and he uses uh, the birth of Jesus to introduce the virgin birth concept, which again was alien to Judaism, and they quote a passage from Isaiah, but it's interesting that they quote a passage from, I think it's Isaiah 7.14, from the Septuagint, which is the Greek version. In the Hebrew version, the uh, virgin would mean young woman. In the Greek version, uh, a virgin is somebody who hasn't had sex. Mm. 
So if you're actually, you know, if you're using the Hebrew version, that has nothing to do with a miraculous uh, birth uh, by Mary, because it just that that verse just meant a, a young woman. So that that number one, there's a twisting of scripture to get that point across. Many of the the gods of the time, whether it be Hercules or whatever, had a had a uh, human mother and God for a father. And this again is what this is the paganism that is introduced into the uh, the birth story of Jesus. You know, now he is uh, uh, you know one and the same with with Hercules and other great uh, uh, heroes of the time. Yeah, sure. So you've got you've got that, but then you also have the idea of Bethlehem and Nazareth. You both stories of uh, Luke and uh, Matthew have to get Jesus to Bethlehem and to back to Nazareth. Okay, and they both go about it in totally different ways. Bethlehem was in the the scriptures as being the place where the Messiah was born, and Nazareth is a town that is really not located anywhere in the Old Testament, in any of the Jewish writings. What it probably was, was that uh, Judas the Galilean and his group were the head of a Nazarene sect, Nazareans, and they were revolutionaries. And what that was is a rewriting of a political aspect of the Messiah into a geographic name place. Nazarene becomes Nazareth. You know, so... There's a lot of sleight of hand going on too. So then we, you know, everybody always says, "Oh, he's from Nazareth." Well, that place might not even have existed mm. at the time. There's no evidence that it ever did. But even if it did, it was probably just used as a way to shift the the revolutionary aspect of Jesus, uh, of, of Judas the Galilean, onto this new Jesus of Nazareth. And then there's one other thing with the birth narrative. In the Slavonic Josephus, the birth of Jesus, there's also a star of Bethlehem seen in that that book. But it, it occurs around 25 B.C. So it's a good 20 years before, and that fits in perfectly with the, the life uh, span and when Judas the Galilean would have been born. So that's very interesting, but you've, you, you haven't heard probably anybody ever talk about that. No, absolutely not. Yeah, which is uh, pretty amazing. So, and, and one other thing, when when even in the uh, church his, historians said that James, who was the brother of Jesus, when he died in 62 A.D., one of the uh, historians said that he was 96 years old when he died. Well, if you take that back, that means he was born right around 35 B.C., if he's the brother of Jesus, doesn't it make sense that Jesus would have been born around that time too? I think so. Jesus being born before Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the, the whole idea is that the, the timelines have been purposely altered to, con- to confuse. They're, they're, they're hiding the, the real truth and they're putting forth what they want to achieve. And one of the interesting things there is not to get too psychological about it, but 
It only takes a little bit of confusion for, for people to lose interest in something and to totally discount it, I find, in my experience. And I think that clearly seems to be what's at work here because you've been able to disseminate the information and quite clearly demonstrate that things should be in a particular order. And quite often it's just one little parallel or one little tributary of information that is enough to send people off in the wrong direction ever so slightly and it's unlikely that they'll track back then. And that seems to have been the case throughout the, the intervening years, really. Yeah. Well, I, and I think the, the main uh, point that the author of Luke did, when he uh, put John the Baptist in 29 AD, every historian, every scholar in religious studies uses that as fact. Everything has to uh, revolve around that date. And I'm telling you, that date is wrong. You know, if that if with that date is uh, used, every, nothing makes sense. Mm. But yet, people have used it, and that's why they can't find a historical Jesus in the writing of Josephus, because they're starting from a point where you can't find it. You almost have to unlearn what you've learned. Yeah. And then start at it, you know, afresh, and look at the historical data without the preconceived no- notions of what is and what isn't. And how many times do we have to do that when we're looking at revisionist history? It's, it's amazing. There's so much cover-up and neglect when it comes to historical timelines down through the years. It's incredible. Yeah, that's true. So what does that mean? I mean, you have another book then, I was going to say in the works, but pretty much done at this stage. Are there any revelations brought to light in that that you could possibly let us in on that would tie in with the body of work that already exists? Or is that completely kind of top secret and for for the next chapter, so to speak? (laughs) Well, I mean, what I've done in that book is I've given a little bit more detail on the, the fourth philosophy and the Herodian movements. And I've also... Uh, spent some time looking at the twelve apostles. I've looked. I'm looking at the uh, the family of Jesus. I'm looking at events in the gospel uh, uh, timeline. For instance, the feeding of the five thousand. Now, here's an example where uh, it, it's taught in church, and you think that the, you have seven fish or five fish, or how many fish there were, and loaves. And all of a sudden, it miraculously multiplies. That mm. goes against the uh, the laws of physics, but yet people believe that. And uh, you know, I'm thinking, is there another explanation to this? Yeah. And the core to the the original Messiah's teaching was one of sharing. And what I believe happened, I think that this probably did happen, is that people went out to to. Uh, uh, listen to this great prophet that's speaking to them. And if, if to give you an example, if I went out, I would probably just run out after the person, not even thinking about what I was going to eat later. My yeah. mom, on the other hand, would have been packing for everybody and probably packing <laughs> for the next day, too. So there were probably some people that came prepared, and there were some people like myself that would have come unprepared. Yeah. The great miracle of this is that he got them to to share. That's the miracle. It wasn't hocus-pocus. It was the sharing of their uh, goods with people that they didn't even know. You know so there, there was a miracle there, but it was just the, the miracle of sharing. 
And what a miracle that would be. I mean, just to draw parallels with our, our current world, what if the top 1%, if you like, or the bankers or whoever else decided to do the same? It would truly be a miracle. Yeah, it would. Well, you know, the funny thing about uh, Christianity, a lot of, a lot of uh, churches preach, you know, basically prosperity through uh, Christianity. But there's a passage in the New Testament where a, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, you know, I followed all the commandments. What else do I need to do to, to follow you? And he says, he said, uh, he looked at the, the young man and he says, give everything you have to the poor and then come follow me. Mm. And it said the rich man looked at him and then walked away because he couldn't part with his goods. Yeah. You know, the whole idea was, you know, the kingdom of heaven is here love your neighbor as yourself, but yet the person that wanted, said he wanted to follow Jesus wasn't willing to help his neighbor. So, you know, I, it's a great message, but nobody, nobody hears it. <laughs> and I'm thinking the Pope now seems to be on the right page, at least in that respect. Well, I mean, it would be great if more people would hear it, and time yeah. will tell, and it remains to be seen. And I suppose as we begin to draw things to a close, Daniel, there were one or two very good comments when I was uh, looking into your work a little bit further online that I came across from readers of your work that really struck me. And I'll, I'll allow you to decide whether these are accurate or not. But one, one that I thought was great for somebody who might be new to this information and might be kind of scoffing at what we're talking about now. Somebody said, do you really think it all began with a sanctimonious Jewish wonder worker strolling about first century Palestine? Prepare to be enlightened with, with reference to your work. And... That's quite a good summation of the work that you're doing. I mean, it's let's get real about things because it was the real world. I mean, mm -hmm. time did exist 2,000 years ago. Real people, real flesh and blood humans, no different to us, existed back then. And quite often, I think it gets kind of brushed under the carpet and people think, well, yeah, that's just a fairy tale in a book. It didn't, none of it could possibly have ever really happened. It couldn't be based on reality. But the simple fact of the matter is there was a reality then. Mm-hmm. That's true. You know, and uh, that's what makes this, this uh, Judas the Galilean story so interesting, because he was uh, a person that united people. You know, he did it because of his own example. He did it, uh, you know, like I said, through the idea of sharing. You know, that, that's one of their core values. Uh, you got to remember that people, most of the people that followed him probably didn't have a whole lot of money, mm. if anything. You know, so it would have been extremely popular to the vast majority of people. The people that wouldn't have liked it would have been the, the Herodian uh, leadership, the uh, people that are controlling the temple, and the Romans who want to collect taxes. Those are the people that didn't like, and that's why they wanted to get rid of this guy. You know, and, that's, and they ended up getting rid of him. You know, so, you know, I, I really do believe it's real. It happened. It's just been tweaked to a, a to an extent that it's unrecognizable to what really occurred. Yeah, and I think it comes back to context again. If you put, for example, since I read your work, I hadn't been to Mass in years, and I decided, right, let's go in, and with my new context, 
let's see what fits or what makes sense or what feels right to me because quite often it, it can be quite difficult to process all the information at once. But does, does this feel right suddenly with a new conce- context? And all of a sudden I found myself sitting there fascinated and I thought, you know what? So much of it here makes sense when it didn't in the past. So if nothing else, what it does is it forced me to question and to look at things and, and realize that, hang on a minute, there is another way. There's not just blind faith here. And I mean, I didn't have any particular faith in the beginning, but there is a historical context to everything. And if you do that, you will start to question and you will start to maybe look at things in a new light yourself. So what did it mean for you and your your Christianity, I suppose? Well, to me, I, I'm just, I was just searching for the truth. You know, I started... Uh, this process, and it, it was kind of an intellectual thing to me. But I've talked to other people, like my my sister says, well, what what about uh, people that say, you know, that they, they live by faith? Mm. You know, and the whole idea is, well, what I'm saying here, and what I think the, the real Messiah said, was to live your life, live a good life. You know, help people, be a good person. You know, th- th- that is the whole key to living a successful life. And I think that can still be followed, and you'll say, well, I won't go to heaven if I do that. Well, who's to say? <laughs> you know, what, what's your concept of heaven and hell? You know, I, I really do believe that if there is a just God, he is going to judge us based on what, what type of lives we live. You know, not so much, well, I believe this or I believe that. Well, so what? Like James said, even the demons believe, you know. So, uh, you know, I, I look at it as just trying to live a good life. Well, I couldn't have put it better myself. I think it's a very fine frame of reference for anyone who's, uh, who's embarking or in the middle or towards the end of their lives because what can possibly be wrong with a message like that? Uh, I agree. Well, Daniel, how can we get our hands on your books if we're looking to do so? Now, we do have links. We'll get them up on the website. But uh, tell us how people can find out more about you and the work and future work as well. Well, I do have a uh, website. It's uh, www.danielunterbrink.com. They can go there. Uh, my, my book is on uh, Amazon. Uh, it's also Amazon UK. It's, uh, there's a Kindle edition also. Um, it's on uh, lots of uh, websites, so if you Google Judas of Nazareth and Unterbrink, there's going to be a, a lot of websites that you could go and purchase your book. Uh, go into the stores and ask for it. You know, they can order it. So, you know, they're, it's out there. It's just, you know, a couple clicks away. But I would, you know, start with Amazon and, and work from there. So no excuses then. (laughs) Just the way we like it. I have the power. You have the power. We have the power. Daniel Unterbrink, it's been fantastic speaking to you on Alchemy Radio. Okay, thank you. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us for our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Jesus loves me, he told me so, that's why when it gets ugly, he hugs me cause he knows me, yo. You gotta let go and let God. Sometimes from the get-go you go hard. It's like the darker it gets, the brighter my light will shine. So 
Regardless, I'm loving this life of mine And with the Lord by my side It don't matter what the car look like Just let me in, I'm going for the ride Faith is blind, ain't got to see it to believe it I just know you gave me the word that I really needed So I prayed for my enemies I prayed for my family, my friends, my loved ones And those who pretend to be Sacrifice your son just to give me a chance So I thank you for the plan thank you. I thank you for your hand you. your shepherd, shepherd Watching over your flock of sheep But I'm good Cause you watch in the dark when I'm sleeping But the Lord will resurrect you If you hug the little boy Then the man will protect you From the dark to the light what? Right to the wrong what? I'ma stay up in this fight what? From the night to the morn Well as I'm in the grace of God My heart will stay true And I'ma do whatever the heart will say do And things go wrong Jesus loves me I'm singing this song Because Jesus loves me I'm gonna be strong Because Jesus loves me Jesus loves me Yes, Jesus loves me I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Alchemy Radio. Remember, we rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and advertising-free format and are very, very grateful for all the help you can offer. There's no fixed cost on the donations. You can find the donate and subscribe buttons on the website and we really, really appreciate your support and assistance. Indeed, thank you to everybody who has donated over the last number of weeks. Until next time, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Alchemy Radio. Analyze, conceive, believe. Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in?